Hi everyone, I'm Debbie Roberts from Property Apprentice. Join me today for the Week in Review where I'll talk about current events for the everyday investor and home buyer. I've got five topics for discussion today. First one's uh, from landlords.co.nz, published on the 3rd of May. Investors Federation has plans to fix the rental crisis. That's a doozy. Um, the second one is an article published on Stuff on the 2nd of May. It's a house buyer's market as real estate asking prices drop across New Zealand. Topic number three, landlords.co.nz on the 2nd of May published an article titled Landlord Tax Could Breach Tax Principles. It makes for interesting reading as well. And topic number four, interest.co.nz on the 4th of May, overseas owners selling their New Zealand properties at more than twice the rate at which they're buying them. And last but not least, on stuff on the 4th of May, People opting for cheaper brands, reducing power usage, but won't ditch Netflix subscription as the cost of living bites. Okay, so let's start with um, with the big topic, which was published on landlords.co.nz. Investors Federation has plans to fix the rental crisis. And there's some really good statistics in this. Um, no precise figures on the size of the rental economy, but the New Zealand Property Investors Federation says that using turnover in the form of rent as a guide the industry's worth in excess of $15 billion a year. That's a fairly substantial amount of tax that landlords are paying just quietly. A common misconception is that large-scale landlords own most of the residential properties, but in fact, according to a 2015 Property Investors Federation survey, 75.85% of residential landlords own only one rental property and just 0.1% of all private landlords own 10 or more properties. So the majority of landlords in New Zealand make up, you know, they're the mum and dad investors. So those are the teachers, the the police, the, you know, like um, hospital employees, nurses, you know, all just everyday Kiwis that own one rental property have been caught by a lot of these recent rules. Now, out of the 600,000 rental properties that we've got across New Zealand, the private sector, so the majority of them being owned by those mum and dad investors, they provide the majority of rental housing, about 85% of them. So that's 510,000. The government produce, uh, the government provides around 72,000 or 12% of the total. The Federation says a large portion of the rental crisis is caused by the, med, by the measures implemented to try and fix it and I have got to agree with that um, the strategy of higher higher costs and taxes to reduce the investment in rental property was meant to at least stabilize house prices however it clearly hasn't worked with property prices increasing at alarming rates up until really recently so it's another one of those unintended consequences the war against landlords had those unintended consequences of making life harder for tenants which um, was to be expected, you know, and a lot of the government departments themselves um, commented to the government about how that would be one of those unintended consequences, but the government did it anyway. Anyway, to be fair, the Federation says a number of the changes imposed by the government have improved rental stock, which is great. You know, healthy home standards, uh, in my opinion, have been pretty good. Uh, some of them were, you know, a little bit over the top, but they've relaxed those a bit. 
changes to the Residential Tenancy Act have had a significant impact as well. According to the New Zealand Property Investors Federation Vice President Peter Lewis, it's the removal of mortgage interest as tax deductions, ring fencing and the increase in the bright line test that is making things more difficult for landlords and therefore more difficult for tenants. In addition to rent increases, there's more than 25,000 families on the state housing waiting list. Taxpayers are spending a million dollars every day on emergency and transitional housing. And uh, so this is what I mean. I think it's ludicrous uh, that the government targeted property investors, private property investors, when there was such a shortage of rental property and people desperately in need for housing. Other problems facing private landlords, delays in tenancy tribunal hearings to to resolve problems, higher operating costs for rental properties um, because we, you know, the um, property managers can't on charge letting fees to the tenants anymore. The landlord now pays for those. Insurance, um, obviously landlords need to cover their costs. Uh, Rates and repairs and maintenance, all that sort of stuff. There's also difficulty funding new rental properties. But what they mean by funding is um, with the cash flow because, you know, for existing properties where the interest deductibility has been removed, um, that has increased the cost to private landlords, especially with the ring fencing of those tax losses as well. Um, bank lending criteria has also got more difficult. So, you know, now uh, there's a lot of landlords who are coming off interest only mortgages and then um, being put onto shorter terms on principal and interest at a time where we've got increasing interest rates, which makes things quite difficult, especially if you, uh, especially if you can't get any tax benefits on the interest cost on the mortgage that you're paying to help house someone. Um, Deterrence to providing rental properties, uh, things like tenant liability for damage, you know, it can be a bit harder now to prove um, tenant liability for any damage caused to a property. The increased bright line test and removing mortgage interest as tax deductions have put some people off investing in property. It certainly has made it a bit more difficult than it used to be, um, but absolutely still worthwhile, you know, if you're looking at a long-term investment strategy. I still haven't found one that's better than investing in property. Increased compliance costs, such as the Healthy Homes Standards and um, and Residential Tenancy Act amendments as well. Higher rental property taxes, you know, we've got the 10-year bright line on existing properties now and five years for new builds. Ring fencing tax losses has been a big one and removing interest as a tax deductibility, that has also been quite a significant change for property investors. So the New Zealand Property Investors Federation is proposing a five-point plan to fix the current rental housing industry. Key points of the plan include the following, reforming the tenancy tribunal, giving greater security of tenure to tenants by establishing a long-term tenancy option similar to the German tenancy system, repeal of ring fencing restrictions, return of mortgage interest costs as a tax deductible expense, return of the bright line test to two years, giving private tenants the same rights and support as state tenants. I mean, for crying out loud, why are we not doing that already? Uh, Returning the right of landlords to issue 90-day notices in order to protect neighbours and communities. And I think that one is something that should be absolutely non-negotiable. Landlords should have the right 
to remove someone who's uh, who's you know clearly causing problems to other tenants and other homeowners in the area as well, uh, rather than f- being forced to keep those tenants in in place, uh, or having one of your neighbours have to go to tenancy tribunal to test them testify that they've been um, threatened you know that's uh, not fun for anybody and the NZPIF's proposal to create long-term tenancies for tenants who want a rental that's more like their own property while providing compensation to landlords for giving up their ability to terminate the tenancy so some of the suggested terms under the proposal and I'm actually not going to comment on my personal thoughts on some of these I agree with a lot of them some of them I think are a little bit excessive, but, um, you know, it's it, to be fair, it, it's understandable, you know, when the New Zealand Property Investors Federation has been facing an uphill battle with this government uh, for several years now, and, um, and there seems to be no end in sight, even though uh, it seems obvious that, you know, if you're in the middle of a rent crisis, you should be working with rental property providers to see if you can improve things for both sides um, just because uh, obviously if things are more difficult for landlords the flow-on effect to tenants becomes even even worse okay and so some of the points that um, some of the suggested terms under the NZPIF's proposal are that the tenancy term should be negotiable between the parties but would have to be for at least a minimum of three years Tenants may give three months' notice to end the tenancy. I'm not sure if um, if that three-year notice period would be allowed to be within that minimum three years. I'm not sure about that. I'd have to look a bit more into those details. Um, tenants can decorate the property as of right but must return it to exactly the same state it was provided in with no allowance for wear and tear unless otherwise agreed to by the landlord. Landlords can only end the tenancy for tenant default for rent arrears, damage to the property, illegal activity, antisocial behaviour, property uninhabitable or subject to mortgagee sale. In other words, landlords can't end the tenancy if they want to move into it or if they want to sell the property. They have to sell it um, with the tenant in place so they can't sell it um, with the tenant vacating. Uh, can't sell it with vacant possession, for example. Landlords must issue a warning notice describing any antisocial behaviour or neighbour disturbance without having to name the affected neighbours, making it clear that they will end the tenancy if the disturbance continues. And if the disturbance or the behaviour continues, then landlords can issue a 90-day notice to end that tenancy. This is something else that I think would be great. Tenants can make gardens as of right, but must return it to the state it was provided in at the end of the tenancy unless agreed by the landlord. I think all those things that can help a land a tenant feel more at home um, would you know, enable them to stay long term and feel a lot more comfortable in their home and hopefully also encourage them to take real care of that property as well. Um, landlords can charge a bond equivalent of up to 12 weeks rent. I would like to emphasize that up to because I think the majority of tenants out there would really struggle coming up with 12 weeks rent. So, um, yeah, I guess what the NZPIF is asking for here is just the potential to be able to ask for more than four weeks rent as a bond um, just to to reduce the risk if, if a good tenant turns bad. 
Um, no obligation for the landlord to provide floor coverings, curtains, light fittings or appliances, including stoves. Walls are painted white at the commencement of the tenancy. And as mentioned previously, if the tenants uh, redecorated the house, they'd have to return it to the condition that it was in at the start of the tenancy. Um, I suspect that the majority of landlords would provide floor coverings, curtains, light fittings and appliances, including stoves, because a lot of those things come as um, chattels when you purchase a property anyway in New Zealand, uh, whereas in a lot of places in Europe, um, you purchase the house, none of the chattels are there. So it is a little bit different over here. Um, but I think having no obligation for the landlord to provide them, that, that makes for an interesting conversation for sure. Um, tenants are responsible for the payment of all insurance premiums, rates and the costs, both fixed and variable, of services to the property, including water. Um, so that could be an interesting conversation as well. Um, tenants can only assign their lease with the landlord's consent or on application to the tenancy tribunal on grounds of hardship. Hardship provisions also apply to the landlord. Uh, so there you go. That gives the indication that if the landlord does end up in financial difficulty, then they could potentially... Um, they could potentially change the conditions there. Uh, landlords can prohibit tenants from subletting the property. Okay, certainly I would expect without their approval of the tenant um, that was going to be replacing. So lots of interesting suggestions there. Um, hopefully it does stimulate some discussion. It'll be great to see, uh, see you know, situations where the NZPIF and the renters um, renters Union or Renters United, um, if if they could, you know, have some good solid talks and um, and actually come up with some agreements that they could combined propose to the government. Uh, I know that hasn't always worked. Uh, sometimes they they've both reached agreements and then the government's overruled them anyway. So. Yeah. I suppose all governments have their own agendas, don't they? It'd be interesting to see what would happen, though. All right, topic number two, published in Stuff on the 2nd of May. It's a house buyer's market as real estate asking prices drop across New Zealand. In April 2022, the New Zealand property report by realestate.co.nz showed the average asking prices for Auckland and Wellington are on a downward trajectory. In April, Hawke's Bay, Otago and Manawatu Whanganui also exhibited signs of moving into a buyer's market and after several months of average asking prices being above $1 million, prices dropped to 908974 in the Bay of Plenty and 971976 in Wellington. Compared to March 2022, Average, compared to March 2021, I think that's supposed to say, <laughs> average asking prices dropped in a number of areas, including Northland, Auckland, Bay of Plenty, Tar Taranaki, Wellington, Nelson, West Coast and Marlborough. Meanwhile, Waikato's gone above the 1 million mark for the first time, average price. Um, the average asking price was up 41.2% compared to the same time last year. Uh, Realestate.co.nz spokeswoman Vanessa Williams said that while there's still plenty of demand from buyers, the heat had come out of the market. Personally, I think the heat came out of the market in December last year. Uh, we're just really starting to see the evidence of that coming through now. I think it's really important to remember that just because average prices move, that doesn't mean that the actual market value has moved. Um, averages can be skewed quite quickly. 
just depending on the types of properties that are selling. So, yeah, the the best indication for what's happening with the property market is to have a look at the um, Real Estate Institute in New Zealand, their house price index. Um, that's the, the tool that, you know, economists such as Tony Alexander um, recommend when you're looking at what's happening over the long term. And uh, the, the house price index from REINZ has certainly shown that things have started slowing down, but nowhere near. Uh, these uh, prices that are, are looked at when you're looking at the averages, okay? So, yeah, keep things into a little bit of perspective and, and don't freak out when you see headlines like this. Um, the usual sense of urgency that comes with most competitive multi-office situations has definitely transitioned into buyers having more time to do their due diligence and make informed decisions, and I think that's great for buyers everywhere. It's frustrating for people who are trying to sell their house because houses are taking longer to sell, especially in Auckland and Wellington. Um, Williams said that the Auckland and Wellington markets tend to be property trend leaders, so it's interesting to see what happens in other regions further down the track. Uh, Yeah, we'll see what happens there. Housing stock went up by 70.8% in April 2022 compared to the same month in 2021. The largest increase in stock was found in Manawatu, Whanganui, followed by Wellington and Hawke's Bay. So, you know, for people looking at purchasing in those areas, you've got less competition and a lot more properties to choose from. So, you know, this is what's meant by a buyer's market, you know, less buyers in the market and potentially more houses on the market. So almost right across the board, we've seen increasing listings, which is great. Okay, for those of you that are in the market to purchase, the increase in stock means that you don't have to rush to make decisions anymore, especially since there's been, um, especially since there's been less um, other buyers in the market as well. All right, so um, that's interesting to note. And there was also a comment in here saying that there's been a decline in new listings. Uh, so the increase in stock is potentially that there's less houses selling. However, um, I think it's it's fairly clear to anyone who's driving around anywhere these days that there's a lot more listings for sale at the moment, which is great when you're out looking to purchase properties. If you want to learn more about the property market, feel free to join me at one of our free Beginner's Guide to Property Investment events. We run them online and also in person in our office in Ellerslie in Auckland. So check us out on propertyapprentice.co.nz for upcoming dates and register today and I'll see you there. Third topic for today is landlords.co.nz on the 2nd of May published an article saying that the landlord tax could breach tax principles. (laughs) This is a cracker. So the government changes to property investors' interest deductibility might already have breached Revenue Minister David Parker's Tax Principle Act, which he wants to become law. Parker said in a speech at Victoria University that tax laws must be clear of ambiguity without determining outcomes which are political in nature. Do I really need to say any more after that point? Uh, The Tax Principles Act is aimed at a fairer, more transparent tax system, which is why it was created with four principles, economic efficiency, horizontal equity, vertical equity, and here's the kicker, drum roll please, administrative ease. 
I mean, to be fair, even the inland revenue, <laughs> even the inland revenue advised against these um, these latest tax changes that affected property investors. So yeah, even when the inland revenue advises the government not to do something because it could affect the integrity of the tax system, and the government goes ahead and does it anyway, you've got to ask yourself, you know, whether they actually asked for the advice or whether they asked for the advice, just hoping that they'd go, yeah, that'll be fine. So, yeah, they certainly didn't seem to listen to it. And um, the Inland Revenue wasn't the only um, department that's, that recommended against these changes. But anyway, according to PricewaterhouseCoopers tax partner, Jeff Nightingale, um, Parker wants to legislate principles that would make officials accountable so he can see how well the tax law performs against them. Under the administrative ease principle, for example, which is how how easy it is for the IRD to administer the tax system and how easy it is for taxpayers to comply. The government's already failed, says Nightingale, because the interest limitation rules are difficult to administer and difficult to apply. He says the interest limitation rules, which became law this year, which stop property investors writing off their interest costs against the tax on their rental income, would also likely go against the horizontal equity principle. Horizontal equity principles, the principle of income tax collection that argues that everybody earning the same income should be subject to the same rate of taxation. Nightingale said that the Bright Line test, which the government extended from five to 10 years for people owning a second house and having to pay tax on the capital gain if it's sold before that time, may also break the principle. And I would suspect, especially for those people who the second house isn't even a rental property, it might be their holiday home, you know, so having to pay capital gains tax on that, um, yeah, I think it's a bit of a stretch. Although my personal opinion is, if you want to use a capital gains tax to fix the housing market, you can't just target one tiny percentage of the population. It's got to be across the board. You know, so if you're going to do a capital gains tax, do it for everybody, not just one tiny sector of the market. I suspect that um, this whole conversation around uh, the extension of the Bright Line tax, I think it was, in my opinion anyway, a bit of a vote grab um, because, you know, there's not that many property investors that get up in arms about it, but there's certainly a large percentage of the population that are tenants who um, often feel a little bit hard done by, especially when faced with someone who's in a, in a stronger financial position than they might be through no fault of their own. Okay, um, Nightingale said that while capital gains or wealth taxes are being ruled out by the current administration under Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern, the Labour Party is unclear on what kind of tax policies it wants to implement for next year's elections. Um, perhaps they will go and um, monitor some more social media commentary around tax policies before they come up with what they want to <laughs> run on. Uh, time for a change of subject. Okay, so topic number four, interest.co.nz. On the 4th of May, overseas owners are selling their New Zealand properties at more than twice the rate at which they're buying them. Well, no huge surprise there, is there, since we've got a foreign buyer ban, which in hindsight appears to have just been a fairly racist uh, law that was implemented for no apparent reason. The latest statistics New Zealand figures show that just 93 residential properties were sold to people who were now neither New Zealand citizens or had residence visas 
in the first quarter this year. It's a sharp decline as it's less than half the number of overseas buyers who bought residential properties in the first quarter of last year and less than 10% compared to the first quarter of 2018. There was also a big drop in the number of residential properties sold by overseas owners in the first quarter of this year. From 423 last year, now the number of properties is just 246. The number of overseas owners selling their New Zealand residential properties has outnumbered those buying them by a substantial margin. And like I said, not surprising uh, because it's pretty difficult for a foreign buyer to purchase a residential property in New Zealand now. So, And a lot of them are exiting the property market Um, So they're selling their rental properties, which is, again, making the rental market even worse in New Zealand for tenants. The Overseas Investment Amendment Act, which restricted non-New Zealand citizens and non-residents to purchase residential property, is seen as being a major contributing factor to this decline. For obvious reasons, Uh, Auckland, Christchurch and Queenstown Lakes are the three most active areas for overseas owner activity in the last 12 months to March. There have been 201 purchases and 711 sales in Auckland, 72 purchases and 93 sales in Christchurch. And for Queenstown, there have been 63 purchases and 90 sales. Data by Stats New Zealand only shows a partial view of overseas owner activity because it only records transactions made under individual names. They don't include sales and purchases under companies and trusts, even if the beneficiaries of those entities are not New Zealand citizens, which is interesting to note. Okay, topic number five, last but not least, people are opting for cheaper brands, reducing power usage, but won't ditch their Netflix subscription as the cost of living bites. It's an interesting study by the research firm, I'm not sure how you pronounce this, I'm going to do my best, to Luna, regarding how recent inflationary pressures are causing changes in buying patterns and behaviour amongst Kiwis. The research surveyed 501 respondents in New Zealand between the 23rd and the 29th of March this year. 85% of shoppers say that they've been affected by the increasing cost of grocery items. I don't know where the other 15% are shopping because I think pretty much everyone would have been affected by increasing cost of grocery items. In order to cope with it, 31% are dropping their favourite brands for cheaper ones, 24% are spending more time looking for the best deals and 30% are buying in bulk to save money. So I've got a couple of tips there for those of you that are thinking about, um, you know, reducing your grocery spend. There's, There's a couple of the, you know, age-old advice things like don't go shopping when you're hungry, you know, don't go grocery shopping when you're hungry. I think um, some of the best things that you can do is to create a menu plan for the week. It does take a bit of time, but no longer time than wandering around the supermarket aimlessly. So create a menu plan for the week and then write a shopping list based on that. Um, Now, something else which helps even more is if you do your grocery shopping online because that way you can actually see the running total as to how much you're spending and if you purchase over a certain amount the delivery is free of charge as well so you know you can do some you can shop around in some instances or even do a click and collect you know so that way you can you can order it online and then go and pick it up yourself to avoid a delivery fee if if there's a delivery fee involved but it really helps you to keep your um, your weekly shop within your budget um, without taking too much more time than it normally would. All right, just a little bit of planning 
can save you a fortune. Um, buying in bulk to save money, that's great when it's a genuine savings. Um, however, just be careful of buying items in bulk that have got a shelf life um, because, you know, like buying fresh fruit and veggies in bulk, for example, chances are you'll just sit, watch them rot if you're anything like our house. <laughs> According to respondents of the survey, the most noticeable increase in cost was on fresh food, which is 84%. Uh, frozen food, 68%, and dry pantry products, 63%. When it came to budgeting, Kiwi households mentioned the following activities they would forego to save money. 35% said they'd reduce ordering takeaways. 29% said that they'd avoid purchasing premium brand products. 27% said that they'd reduce the amount of times they'd go to pubs. 23% said they'd reduce overseas travel. And 18% said they'd reduce gambling. 28% of the respondents said they're delaying purchasing items for their homes and 25% are looking for more cost-effective furnishings as well. But people said they're least likely to forego their mobile phone contracts, which have become a lifeline for most people in New Zealand, and also uh, least likely to forego TV subscriptions in a bid to save money. So, uh, yeah, I suspect that could be a hangover from the amount of time that we've all spent in lockdown over the last couple of years. We've got used to having something, you know, available when we needed it or wanted it. In terms of energy consumption, more than half of the respondents said that they're turning off their lights wherever possible and 40% agreed to taking shorter showers. Other energy saving measures that, have, that people have been using is 36% said that they're using eco or cold settings on their washing machines and dishwashers. 23% said they're reducing their heating temperature and 18% said that they're programming their laundry to run during low tariff hours. So I think there's some pretty good suggestions there. Regional Director of Toluna, New Zealand, Stephen Walker, said that feedback like this is really important as it can help guide business. Other than that, it's also important to note that people's attitude towards their finance can determine their success when it comes to purchasing big ticket items like property. Banks at the moment are also very meticulous about reviewing your finances, so it can be really helpful if you cultivate good spending and saving habits early. Now, um, I know that a lot of people are really struggling financially, so you know, understanding the difference between your income and your expenses is one of the first things that you need to do to get things on track. And when you're looking for long-term um, long purchasing items like you know, investments and, and purchasing rental properties or purchasing a home, it is really important that you get everything sorted right from the beginning um, because that will bring those long-term goals closer towards you. What we find over the years that we've been working with people in this area, um, we found that sometimes the people that are best at money management are the people that are on minimum wage because they literally can't afford to waste their money. What we often find is that the more people earn, the more they spend. So, you know, it can be easier for people on higher incomes to cut back and, and save money without impacting on their lifestyle too much. But uh, it does come at a cost. They do have to sacrifice some of their lifestyle, you know, short-term pain for long-term gain. For people on, on lower incomes, um, you know, get some help, you know, get some budget advice, 
The Sorted website is fantastic. So, you know, look up the Sorted website. There's all sorts of really good tools that are free of use uh, to help you work out your budget and um, give you some tips around saving and spending. All right. So hopefully you enjoyed this week in review and uh, feel free to get in touch with us if you want to learn more about investing in property or you want some financial advice around that without any conflict of interest because we don't sell houses. All right. So we'll look forward to hearing from you and um, enjoy your weekend.